This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org/donate. Thanks for your support. Good morning. <clears throat> I spoke this morning in the opening words about um, or asking the question, what is Zazen? And invited each of us to step into that question uh, and to do it through Zazen. I wanted today to um, take up a... Uh, an article that was published in the Ten Directions, uh, kind of a newspaper uh, by the Zen Center of Los Angeles in 1990. And it was based on a, um, a Dharma talk, a Teisho, by Maizumi Roshi. Um, um, some of you know know of Maizumi Roshi, and I think it's it's worth saying a few words about him. Hakyu Taizan Maizumi was uh, born in 1931, and is um, a Japanese Zen teacher and uh, a Roshi, and held uh, transmission lineages in three different. Uh, who's a lineage holder in three different. Um, lines of Zen Buddhism. Um, and that has important implications for what we do here today. Um, he was a lineage holder in the Soto school, um, a lineage holder in the Rinzai school, the Koan school, and a lineage hol- holder in the Sambo Kyodan tradition of Zen, which was a lay tradition. Uh, founded by um, Yamato Roshi and really came to prominence under Yasutani Roshi, uh, who's, in essence, uh, a great, 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 great grandfather, if I have the number of greats correct. Um, And um, as a result in his teaching, he combined the Rinzai use of koans and the Soto emphasis on Shikantaza, which we do in our teachings. And it's been interesting to observe how even in the, what I call the Soto Soto, the um, singular Soto lineage in the United States, as I'm reading the writings of respected teachers there, They've obviously done some koan study, and what that means is going to be different for whole different sets of circumstances, um, because I'm seeing more and more references to uh, uh, koans in their writings. These are people who sat and received transmission in the Soto school, sitting shikantaza, never working on a koan. Um, and then probably, to one degree or another, and that's a large space there, uh, went back and did some, to one degree or another, koan study with uh, 
people who had um, studied koans and I assume received transmission in that lineage. Um, So our um, tradition in the Mountains and Rivers Order uh, entwines those two. So people who sit shikantaza will sooner or later in some way encounter koans, often in teishos or dharma talks. Um, If they become a shuso, they'll definitely work on a koan uh, when at the culmination of their shuso ship uh, when they do dharma encounter. Um, and um, and often people doing shikantaza, depending where they are and how long they've done it, um, will be um, asked to look at aspects of koans in their study um, Depends. It's very variable. It depends on the student. Um, so there's no rule there. Maizumi founded or co-founded a number of institutions, uh, practice centers. Uh, he was the first abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery. So when Zen Mountain Monastery was founded, uh, Daidoroshi had not yet received transmission. He had finished his training, but not yet received transmission. Uh, so Maizumi Roshi is actually the first abbot. If you go up to the cemetery, you'll see the stupa, which has some of his remains and acknowledges that he was the first abbot. Um, um, he founded the White Plum Asanga, which all MRO students are part of. Uh, he transmitted to... Um, 12 Dharma successors... Uh, appointed 68 priests and gave the Buddhist precepts, Jukai, to more than 500 practitioners. So a long life of Buddhist practice. And he was part of the first generation of Zen teachers whose job it was really to bring over and establish Zen practice, especially Zazen, uh, to this country. So some of those teachers you may be familiar with, uh, Shinru Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, um, uh, Shin Yin, who founded the center in um, um, uh, Queens, very vital center. Uh, Kapla Roshi, my first teacher. Um, uh, Sun Sinin. Um, and a number of other, some of which are well-known and some of which are lesser-known, first-generation teachers who had a tremendously challenging job. Uh, Many of them came over in the 50s and 60s, and things were um, a bit unsettled in this country, Uh, and I'm actually wondering if we're heading towards a similar time, which I don't consider to be bad uh, in this country, Um, uh, so that's another story. Um, and there are many interesting and fascinating stories of what these teachers faced uh, when they started up uh, Zen centers. Maizumi Roshi started up, if I'm recalling correctly, I may be getting it mixed up with Suzuki Roshi's start. Maizumi Roshi, who was a transmitted to teacher when he came over, um, uh, came over and started 
working as a gardener just to support himself. I think Suzuki Roshi um, just opened a storefront and, you know, put something on this, like a zazen here or a sign like that in the window. And, um, and eventually people came. It's kind of an old, a ancient tradition of uh, masters, you know, kind of going up to the mountains, Bodhidharma, start with Bodhidharma, and uh, just sitting. And that's what uh, Suzuki Roshi did. He just he had a storefront, got in a cushion, just sat there until people knocked on the door. What are you doing? You know, that kind of thing. Um, Maizumi Roshi's successes include uh, Bernard Glassman, Tetsugan, um, Genpo, uh, Daido Roshi, Chosen Bays, Jerry Shishinwick, Joko Beck, and um, Neojin. Um, uh, Dharma's successor you may not be familiar with, although he's visited the monastery uh, some time ago. And he died, uh, Maizumi, in 1995. And if you've uh, ever had the chance to see the video, Now I Know You, it's a stunning video. It's about his life and death. Absolute stunning video. Um, so this is an article called Why Zazen? And it, it, it takes up the, you know, a variation of the question I asked in, in opening the Zazen Kai. What is Zazen? Um, and um, in the course of investigating this, he takes, he, he takes from what's called the Bendoa. The Bendoa was the first writing in Japanese that Dogen did when he came back from China. So... Um, you may be familiar with Dogen's story where he was in Japan. He had a fundamental question. If we're all fundamentally awakened as Buddhas from the beginning, why do we need to practice? Why do we need to sit Sazen? Why do we need to do anything? That was his koan. And he went through the Rinzai uh, koan um, um, uh, uh, study with his teacher at that time, because, and that's what he he also studied Tendai and other traditions and still wasn't satisfied, although clearly he had insight. And he eventually went to China on a pilgrimage, and there are many stories about that, and um, met his teacher, Ju Jing. I gave a talk, a Taisho, on, a, on uh, Ju Jing's uh, awakening a, couple of, a few weeks ago, I think maybe the last time I was here. Um, and then came back and was faced with a, a challenge because although Buddhism was active and well-known in Japan, nobody sat. Uh, they did liturgy. They studied the precepts. Um, uh, they studied intellectually. They studied the teachings and the sutras. Um, but Zazen was not an essential part of Buddhist practice when he came back. And so he wrote the Bendoa. The Bendoa means uh, discourse on the practice of the way, uh, sometimes translated as um, uh, a talk about pursuing the truth or a talk on the practice of Zazen. And it's very pithy, direct, uh, relatively short, uh, chapter, and it's uh, um, 
think it became, the text was written in 1231. Um, and it was actually lost for a couple of hundred years, and it became the first chapter of Fascicle in the Shobo Genzo. Uh, so that's what you encounter when you open the Shobo Genzo, Zazen. And it's no accident that, you know, when you... Um, enter here, enter the monastery for the first time, what you encounter is uh, instruction in Zazen. And then, uh, assuming there's the space for it, you put in a mat and say, here it is, go do it. And I often say what I say to you today when I give beginning instruction. At the end of that, when you've gone through all the technical aspects of how to do Zazen, um, and actually this sums up this whole talk, and I can probably stop as soon as I say this, there's, there's a secret to doing zazen. You know, there's, there's a real secret. Uh, and that is to actually do it. <laughs> to do it while you're doing it. Uh, so with that, no, I'll go on. <laughs> In that uh, chapter, uh, Dogen sp- st- speaks of Jiju's Samadhi which can be loosely translated as the samadhi of self-fulfillment and enjoyment. And um, he speaks of zazen as the uh, gate, gateway of uh, ease and joy. And, uh, you know, that's really challenging, isn't it? You know, uh, to encounter zazen as the gateway of ease and joy. And yet that journey from encountering Zazen as my knees hurt. Oh, my knees hurt is nothing. My brain hurts, you know. And then, oh, my brain hurts is nothing. My life hurts, you know. Oh, my life hurts is nothing. The world hurts, you know. It's kind of the the journey that you encounter in Zazen um, to the gateway of ease and joy, which doesn't discount any of the other aspects of Zazen. doesn't put that aside. Um, that's a remarkable journey and a place where practice can, can really, I, I think when that happens, we really begin to trust ourselves in a way that we haven't before, um, even though we've committed to the practice of Zazen. Um, so Jijuju Samadhi, uh, the Samadhi of self-fulfillment and enjoyment, um, or literally, the samadhi of receiving and using the self. Receiving and using the self. And it's very subtle. Receiving and receiving the self. What does that mean, receiving the self? Well, of course, it invites you to experience through your zazen what is the self. What is the self? And of course, we all tend to work from the self as me, you know. So is that receiving the self? Is that receiving one micron of the self? What is that? Uh, Uchiyama Roshi comments on that. We can understand the samadhi of self-fulfillment and enjoyment as the samadhi or concentration on the self when it simply receives and accepts its function or its spiritual position in the world. So just open up your imagination to receive and accept the function of you as a human being. 
receive and accept your spiritual position in the world. As, now, he didn't say as opposed to your non-spiritual position, because the spiritual position has no lack. There's no, it's not a base, it's not a versus, the, the material position. It includes everything. But imagine your life from that perspective. Imagine your life as that possibility of receiving and accepting your function or your spiritual position in the world as your whole being. And this is a very different way of looking at yourself and especially looking at your relationship with others because when we look at our relationship with others, usually we look at it through the, the lens of some sort of position, right? Some sort of relativity, some sort of subtle or not subtle judgment. Uh, and, of course, that automatically leads to suffering. And it takes a long time in practice to realize that there is no suffering outside ourselves. There's no suffering that someone else is creating that we are experiencing. That the suffering we are experiencing is our suffering. We are creating that. Just like no one can give you realization, no one can give you suffering. It's yours. Your life in that moment. So Nishiyama, a translator, the first translator in English with a lot of help um, of the Shobo Genzo, writes that um, Jiju Samadhi suggests the state of natural balance which we experience when making effort without an intentional aim. Effortless effort. Effort without an intentional aim, which sums up Zazen beautifully. So the text, uh, the first part of the text, um, in the Bendoa, is uh, a series of questions, three questions. And I'm going to read them and take them up one at a time and integrate Maizumi Roshi's comments and some comments of my own. So the first question is, and, and these questions are coming from, um, you know, the, a, a person who's hearing about Zazen as relatively new, a new practice. They know a lot about Buddhism, um, but they've never done Zazen before. And that sometimes happens here, and it's relevant to us where people uh, come in um, and know a lot about Buddhism and a lot about Zen because they've read all the books. And, um, you know, you get uh, pretty quick to the story of the, you know, the American student who visits the Japanese Roshi and... Uh, um, expounds the Dharma to the Japanese Roshi while the Roshi is pouring tea. You've all heard this story probably. And, you know, the, he keeps pouring the tea and the cup is full and he keeps pouring the tea and pouring the tea and the, the American says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're getting tea all over the place. And 
the Japanese Roshi says, well, that's what you're doing. You know, you're getting this Zen all over the place. Um, and of course, none of that is to actually drink the tea. So the first question is, um, we have heard the merits of Zazen is lofty and great. But an ignorant person may be doubtful and say, there are many gates for the Buddha Dharma. Why do you recommend Zazen exclusively? And the answer is that that Dogen gives, is because this is the, the front gate to the Buddha Dharma. Because it is the front gate. Very direct. Very, very direct. And it's interesting how when we investigate ourselves, how difficult it is to be direct to stay with ourself. The mind, you know, twists and turns and bounces things, uh, does anything then to stay with ourself, because our self is suffering. It hurts to stay with ourself. So that's how direct, because it is just so. It is the gate to the Buddha Dharma. Do you know this for yourself? That Zazen is, is the gate? I mean, as practitioners, when we come here in the United States at this time, uh, you know when you're coming to a, a Zen temple that you're going to do Zazen, or almost everybody knows that. And as people who practice it in here, uh, Zazen is what we do. And there are other practices that we do, uh, but Zazen is what we do. So we know that, and we, we already buy that, so to speak. And so it's easy to overlook this question. It's easy to overlook Zazen. It's easy for it to become something we're accustomed to do. Well, I sit every day. I you know, put in my 30 minutes or an hour. Or if you're a resident here, you know, I sit in the morning, I sit in the evening. I'm following the schedule. Um, You know, it's interesting. Um, It's very rare. Um, When I come here, it's very rare to actually see people sitting in the zendo during during informal times. Now, some people sit in their rooms, and I understand that, and I do that. Um, But it's even in the monastery... It was much less rare, but it wasn't common either. Um, it's kind of the pro forma appearance. You do what the schedule dictates. Um, I'll make you a promise. If you practice according to a recipe, whether it's in a monastery, a temple, or your own recipe, and that's what you hold to, you will never wake up. You will never wake up. That's a guideline. That's a help. But you're going to have to dig deeper than that. You're going to have to do what you have to do. You, as that Nirmanakaya Buddha, you, as that individual, would-be awakened person, will have to take care of. 
There's nothing cookbook about zazen and about this practice. And so because there's nothing cookbook, we make a cookbook. He has the recipes and he has what to do. And as any, you know, I, I remember watching Aho uh, take care of flowers, uh, take care of plants, and the instructions would say, do this, water, da, 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 and she didn't do any of that. Or I watch her cook in the kitchen and there's a recipe, you know, and she'd look at the recipe and then she'd close the book and go about and cook, you know. Uh, now that's a level of semi-mastery, a level of feel, a level of experience. That's the same way in this practice. Uh, it's essential to follow the recipe until you can throw the recipe away. Do you need to sit in a chair? Is that... Please. So that's what it means to know Zazen for for yourself. Is to trust deeply what you need to do to wake up. And so that's what it means to devote your life to Zazen. that Zazen is the center of our life. In the center of our life in a particular way, that we, we start with our practice of Zazen, and then we build our life around it. That's a given. And again, I can promise that every one of us can do this, because they can do it in prison, they can do it in the midst of no matter what your work is, they can do it in the midst of relationship, of divorce, of a child dying, a husband dying, because all that has been done, is being done, as we speak, by people in the Sangha. That we go willingly to Zazen, that we understand that Zazen is at the heart of our being. It is who we are. No matter what we're feeling, we may want to sit, we may not. And again, I can guarantee there's no one who always wants to sit. I quote a Joko Beck, a successor to Maizumi Roshi, uh, a realized being, you know, who wrote in one of her books, you know, uh, she had just done a session or a weekend session, and she had another session coming up, and she talks about, oh, shit, I've got another session coming up, my legs are killing me, and, uh, you know, and my, i got to write i got to prepare for this, and so on and so forth. I really don't want to do this. And what did she do? She got up and she did the session. Well, welcome to being a human being. I actually don't give a shit whether I feel like it or not. I, I say that very directly because it's not that it's not important to me what I feel. It is important to me what I feel. But I understand what that is and the priority of where my heart is, what I'm staked on, what my life is staked on. And so I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that as an example of how each of us can, if we wish, arrange our life in any way that we wish, and our life will reflect that. And the single smartest thing I ever did in my life, in terms of the fulfillment of my life, was to sit. That's the single smartest thing. So I understand that feelings come and go, and I really don't seem to be able to control them. But I know for myself that the entry point to the Buddha Dharma is Zazen. 
And that's the invitation to all of us. And within that, there's a great determination as we explore this. A willingness to sit no matter what the circumstances of our being are. There's a great faith. Trusting our own experience of Zazen. Trusting our own experience of Zazen. Well, what happens when our experience of Zazen is crappy? And, you know, my mind is all over the place. Has that ever happened to you? Probably not, but it's happened. That's a laugh line, thank you. <laughs> certainly happened to me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm not in control of my mind. I understand that sometimes my mind is all over the place. And I'd rather it be tight and concentrated and in deep samadhi, but it ain't like that right now. And that's Zazen. That's the Zazen of my mind is all over the place. And in a way that's trusting our desire to live as a true human being and not be caught by a limited sense of ourself in our selfishness and in our unending desires for us to be a certain way. It's sitting zazen is, is great doubt, great questioning. You know, I, I asked at the beginning, what is zazen? Well, I hope nobody is going to come into the uh, Dyson room and tell me, this is Zazen. Good luck with that. So being open to the mind of just this. Well, what is just this? It's you, just as you are. Being open to that. What does it mean to be open? That's a wonderful question. What does it mean to be open? Where's the boundary of being open? Where's the edge of being open? Where's the edge of you? Being open to our endless thought processes. And being conscious to engage that or not engage that. There are times in Zazen to engage those thought processes. They're showing us something. It's helpful. And there are times to not engage it. Mostly not engage it. But that mostly doesn't mean never. So Zazen allows for all possibilities because the Dharma gate allows for all possibilities, which means especially those we know nothing about. Nothing about. Well, think about that. We know nothing about these possibilities. We can't know anything about them until we encounter them as our own experience. That's Zazen. And that Sazen, knowing nothing about the possibilities, even if we've been sitting for 30 or 40 years, this time of Sazen is that time of unknowable possibilities.
The second question, why do you regard Zazen alone as the front gate? And Dogen responds in the Bado, he says, the great masters, Shakyamuni, correctly transmitted this splendid method of training in the way. The Tathagatas of past, future, and present all attain the way by doing Zazen. For this reason, it has been transmitted as the front gate. Not only that, but also all of the ancestors in India, China, and in the West have attained the way by doing Zazen. Thus, I vow to teach the front gate to human beings and devils, meaning everybody. Human beings and devils are you and I, everybody. So he says, all of the ancestors attain the way by doing Zazen. What does attain the way mean? You could say enlightenment. Maizumi says literally, it translates as to gain the way, or get the way, or realize the way. And then he says something that's really crucial. Dogen Zen, I'm quoting Maizumi here. Dogen Zenji doesn't say, just sit and don't expect to realize or attain anything. And you could, you could understand Zazen as that way. Just sit and don't attain and don't expect to realize anything. Rather, he says the opposite. All Buddhas, all ancestors, they did Zazen and attained the way. From inside Zazen, the way comes out. Attainment is part of the natural function of Zazen. So this is not a matter of don't attain enlightenment, don't seek after enlightenment. It happens. It happens. Just don't be too crazy about it. Well, that's the middle way. We're sitting to realize ourselves. Don't attach to it. Don't make it something outside yourself. Don't grab it. Don't make it a goal. All these are thoughts about Zazen. All these are thoughts about enlightenment. They're not direct realization itself. Dogen Zenji says, the great enlightenment is like having meals or having tea. To have enlightenment as such is as common as drinking tea or eating. It's just your mind. Your mind, freed from all of the habit of self-regard. Because it's freed from all the habit of self-regard, it doesn't disregard the self. It holds the self in high regard, but it understands what that self is. It's limitless as this very body and mind, as Shakyamuni's very body and mind, as the person I can't stand, very body and mind, 
not realized perhaps. But, you know, from my perspective, I've met a few people who had insight who I couldn't stand. What does that say about me? What does that say about them? Isn't that interesting how our mind functions? That's what it's, that's how I practice that. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> how my mind takes anything, even somebody who I know is realized and can see that they're realized and judges them. The third question is longer. Dogen says, or quotes the student, we understand that you have correctly transmitted the Tathagata's excellent method and studied the tracks of the ancestors. It is beyond the reach of ordinary thought. However, reading sutras or chanting Buddha's name of itself must be a cause of enlightenment. How can Zazen, just sitting uselessly and doing nothing, be depended upon for attaining enlightenment? Maybe you have a similar question to that. I love sitting uselessly and doing nothing. And Dogen replies, if you think that the samadhi of all Buddhas, their unsurpassable great method, is just sitting uselessly and doing nothing, you'll be, you'll be one who slanders the great vehicle, the Mahayana. Your delusion will be deep, like saying there is no water when you're in the middle of the great ocean. After all, Buddhas graciously sit at ease in self-fulfilling samadhi. Is this not producing great merit? What a pity that your eyes are not yet open, that your mind is still intoxicated. And then Maizumi says, I like that passage. I like that passage too, because it expresses something that I've always felt frustrated about when someone tells me that, well, let me put this another way. We all come from ourself when we stumble into our questions and problems and challenges. And so we ask questions out of self-regard, out of our self-centered perspective of being, out of delusion. And what are we looking for? We're looking for a secure, safe place that we can rely on and say, boy, Ronnie, you're safe. You're safe. I got gotcha. you. I love you. Everything's fine. You don't have to worry. I'm not kidding. We want to be safe. We want to know that everything's fine, that we're good, and above all, we want certainty. Well, that's where the Buddha started from in his teaching. He said there is no certainty. That you're relying, relying on something that has no ground. The only certainty in your search for certainty is constant change. Reality 
is change. There's no fixed reality. So there is a place and a time where you will have constant certainty and things will be fixed and you will have no fears. It's called death. Because from the perspective of you, it's unchanging, right? It's gone away. There is no you that you can find. So there's nothing to change. Nothing that can change. Of course, your physical body will change, but that's not who you fundamentally are. So we are desperate for this. And so for some of us, some people come to Zazen as the scariest thing because you're, you're investigating your sense of self, which is your thoughts, and you're letting it go, and you're coming back to your breath. But you're also facing this, the impermanence of your very being. You're relying on your sense of self to give you permanence, to give you a structure that will protect you and allow you to be safe in. Well, the Buddha looked at that and said, you know, in effect, how's that working for you? Because all I see is suffering. That's all I see. And we're all relying on something that doesn't exist. And so you can look at all religious endeavors from this perspective as a desire to find a fixed sense of security in a way that keeps you safe, keeps you personally, your small sense of you, which is what we depend on, what we invest in, safe. And so, you know, we have heaven. So, yes, obviously life is difficult and has immense suffering. But don't worry. If we follow the rules, we'll go to heaven. So just follow the rules. What are the rules? Well, here's a Bible, or here's a Talmud, or here's, you know, the Buddha's sutras. Follow the rules. So in a temple or a monastery, we have the rules, right? Well, what are the rules designed to do? Well, on a superficial level, yes, they're designed to keep order and keep harmony within a community and allow us to eat and be fed and be safe and interact socially in a way that works. There's only one rule in a temple or a monastery. The rule is wake up. That's what it's about. That's what the rules are about. Wake up. And, you know, it's, it's, interest, it's an interesting challenge when partic- particularly people come to the, the monastery um, or, you know, let, let's see if I can give you an example. Um, when I came to the monastery, I had a dog, uh, Kita, big Akita. If you're familiar with Akitas, they're an impressive breed. They're kind of bear-like. And um, nobody wants to mess with an Akita. And um, we wanted to move in. And of course, you can't. You got a dog. So we moved a couple of miles away, or a mile away from the monastery. We bought a house and lived there with... We actually had two dogs, but eventually one went to my son. And uh, 
so on and so forth. And we lived there, and I went on schedule for two years or so. I was there every day on schedule, kind of what Suisse is doing, but she, she could take some time off. I didn't take any time off. Different set of circumstances. Um, and after two years, we again, the rule is no dogs, right? That's the rule. And other people have begged and pleaded to come in with their dog or cat and da-da-da. And we applied again. And they said, yeah, you can move in. I said, what about my dog? I said, that's not a problem. Just make sure, you know, he's taken care of and he isn't running around the property. Well, what happened? What happened to the rule? And it wasn't about me being special. It was about the circumstances. Applying the rule to the specific set of circumstances that helped me, the person applying, and AHO, and the community wake up. In a sense, it had nothing to do with me. And yet, for two years, I'd been on schedule. I'd become known in that sense. Trusted enough. And so that's how rules are. The rules of this temple, the rules of practice, they're there. You follow them. You stick to them. You see through them. And that gives you the freedom to understand that when someone's moving during a talk and they're uncomfortable, to ask them to go sit in the back. That helps them. Not a problem. Or if someone's moving during zazen, for the, for the uh, monitor to go, how are you doing? Do you need to get up and move and stretch or sit in a chair? But there's no moving. Why do you know? So where's the compassion that leads to awakening? That's the question we should ask ourselves always about our practice. Where is the compassion in our zazen that leads to awakening? And that, that question should start with ourself. It should always start with ourself. So if you're judging others, be they political figures, be they figures you hate and represent everything in your life that you've taken up arms against, that you've protested against, that you've that just makes your teeth go like that. <laughs> you should ask, where's the compassion? In you yourself. That's the starting place. If you want to live a life of compassion, it has to start with you yourself. And that has to come out of Zazen because what you're encountering in Zazen is you yourself. You may choose to look at that, or you may not. That's yours. So you can sit there for 30 years and never go past the line in the sand. until it's as if life has a hand that grabs you by the throat and pulls you across that, that line in the sand because finally your suffering has become so much that you can no longer fight. And then the opportunity for the fundamental joy and openness of Zazen can flower. And your heart can open and flower. 
not as some idea, not of some way you're supposed to be, but as you, your personality, your being, your life, in the context of your life. We will never know our capacity. until we gradually and directly let go of where we've set our boundaries. We have all chosen in one way or another, without exception, to draw a line and say, this is my boundary. You know, thou shall not pass. You know where I'm quoting? You know, that... The monster, you know, coming and the wizard saying, thou shall not pass. Well, we do that. Except instead of it being a monster, it's our the full realization of our Buddha nature. I say that because my grandkids keep quoting this to me and <laughs> holding up a sword <laughs> or something. It's thou shall not pass. But we do that. And yet, you know, there's no way to just throw open the doors of ourself and let light and love flood in. It's not like that. We have to face the monster. We've created it. It's ours. It's on our leash. And... um, We've petted it and fed it and called it by our name. And it is us. But look at, all the, look at all the energy that's in that monster. The part of us that we don't want to acknowledge, that we don't, the beast we don't want to let loose. Look at all the energy that's available to live out of an open heart and of a heart that is truly generous and loving, that considers the possibility of kindness in all our interactions. Now, kindness is not always the best response, but it'll take you a long ways. And to, to investigate what it means to be truly kind, starting with your own heart. Just one other word. Tomorrow I'm going to give, kind of address the question of uh, why Zazen and the extension of that. um, Where does Zazen go? Thanks so much for listening. Please join us on Saturday, September 8th at the Zen Center of New York City for Awakening to Karma, How Karma Manifests as Our Life and Practice, a day-long retreat offered by Ron Hogan Green Sensei. For details or to find out more about ZCNYC programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.